Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, welcome back. I'm Chris Shandro, the pastor at Compass. As always, I am just thrilled to have you with me today. And to start off, I want you to do a little mental exercise with me. I want you to imagine that we are judges at the Compass Sandwich Championship, a sandwich cook-off. And it's the competition where everyone competes to see who at Compass makes the absolute best sandwich. Now, as the judges, we have the honor of sampling and rating each sandwich to see who's gonna win. The first one comes up and it's this thick, gooey grilled cheese sandwich that's on perfectly toasted brioche bread, followed by a delightful meatball sub on a crunchy baguette. And then it all rounds out with a refreshing chicken salad sandwich on whole wheat. But when the final competitor comes, they place a hamburger in front of you. You eat it and it's delicious, but to judge this competition fairly, you have a dilemma. It's a question that we need to answer. Is a hamburger a sandwich? Now it's a no brainer. If this were a hamburger competition, obviously this thing would take the cake. It's amazing. But does a hamburger belong in the same contest as a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? All right, maybe this is too easy because a hamburger, it fits within your definition of a sandwich too well. But what about a hot dog? Is a hot dog a sandwich? Or a lettuce wrap? And what about the Zinger Double Down King, a burger, a real burger from KFC that uses fried chicken for buns, no bread? Is this a sandwich? The point is that to win a sandwich competition, you first have to know what qualifies as a sandwich for the purposes of the competition. Only then can you execute it well. Your hot dog may be the most delicious entry, but if it doesn't fit the definition of a sandwich, then a half burnt panini will still beat it. Now I bring this up because just like there are lots of different options of what defines a sandwich, there are also many different opinions on what defines the kingdom of God. And today we're starting off a brand new message series called The Kingdom, because we're moving into a section of Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 13, where he used stories to explain the kingdom of God to people, to explain how it worked and what it looked like. I mean, look at what Jesus said in Luke 4, 43. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. Jesus is saying, I was sent to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus came to announce the kingdom of God and to invite people like you and me to be part of it. But there's a problem. Jesus never came right out and said what the kingdom of God is. He described it. He described what it looks like and he explained how it works. But there's never a point where Jesus started at the beginning and said, hey guys, this is what the kingdom of God is. To use our sandwich analogy, Jesus described the qualities of a perfect sandwich. It's delicious with bold flavors and textures. It's easy to eat without falling apart. But Jesus never just said, a sandwich is meat, vegetables, and condiments placed between two pieces of bread. And the reason Jesus didn't do that is, is not because he didn't want people to know, but it's because he and his audience already had a cultural understanding of what the kingdom of God was. Everyone knew what you meant when you said kingdom of God in Jesus's day. So nobody had to explain it. 
For them, it was a concept that was so familiar that it didn't require a definition. And as a result, Jesus mostly taught about the details of how God's kingdom looked and functioned on the ground level in people's lives, rather than trying to explain the big picture of what the kingdom of God was. I mean, for example, a high school science teacher who's teaching about the atmosphere, they're going to start by describing the atmospheric layers, the troposphere, the stratosphere, the mesosphere, etc. But that science teacher, he wouldn't start by saying, okay, guys, listen, the first thing you need to know is that the earth is round. It's assumed that a kid in high school would know that. So it wouldn't need to be explained that the earth is round. But again, that leads us to a problem. Because Aristotle declared that the earth was round in 350 BC, but there are still people today, 2,000 years later, who think that the earth is flat. And because their baseline understanding of the earth isn't ordered correctly, it's nearly impossible for them to understand the deeper and more scientific concepts of the atmosphere. And it's the same with the kingdom of God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was explaining deeper and more complex concepts about God's kingdom to people who already had an understanding of what God's kingdom was. But 2,000 years later, many of us, including many in the church, still don't get it. In fact, we're starting with our own understanding of what the kingdom of God is, our own cultural understanding and interpretation, and working from there rather than starting with Jesus's understanding of the kingdom. So before we dig into the parables Jesus used to describe the kingdom of God, like we're going to next time, I want to get us on the same page today about what the kingdom actually is. And to do that, we're going to look at what the kingdom of God isn't. Okay, so so roll with me. This is what the kingdom of God is not. The kingdom of God is not religion. For most people, learning about God and developing a relationship with him, it involves going to church or exploring a religion. And that's not a bad thing. Religion, it creates structures that attempt to make it easy to find and follow, or follow God. Man-made structures. But religion is not the kingdom of God. In fact, religion can miss what God is doing as easily as anything else can. Look at Luke chapter 17, verse 20. It says, one day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. The Pharisees, they were the most conservative, devout religious people that you could find in Jesus' day. And many Jewish people thought that when God's kingdom came in power, it would obviously happen in the context of the Jewish religious structures. But Jesus says that's not how it is. In fact, the religious people of Jesus' day couldn't even see it, even though Jesus said that it was already there. See, religion is a human attempt to organize spiritual principles in a way that helps us to stay oriented on the kingdom of God. But it isn't the kingdom of God. Jesus lived at a time when the Jewish people believed the temple was the physical home of God on earth. They believed it was the only physical space where God and man could actually interact. If you wanted to find God, go to the temple. If you wanted to find his kingdom, go to the temple. But Jesus said, nope, the kingdom of God is not religion and it's not the temple. It's not a physical space you can point to or go to, which means... Going to church and following the rules of religion, however good that might be, 
doesn't make you part of the kingdom of God. So first, the kingdom of God is not religion. Second, the kingdom of God is not national power. For years, and even today, there are people who think that the kingdom will be fully expressed when a nation, its laws, and all of its people are fully oriented around following God. And that we can actually bring the kingdom of God into being. And by advancing kingdom priorities using political and even military tools. There's this modern theology called the Seven Mountain Mandate. And it says that God's kingdom will take over the world when kingdoms, or I'm sorry, when Christians have control over seven spheres of society. And those spheres are this, family, religion, uh, education, media, entertainment, business, and government. And they believe that if Christians can exert influence and power in these areas, that Christians can control society. And therefore, we can usher in the kingdom of God. But that's not Jesus' way. When Jesus was pushed to pick a side by religious people who, who themselves believed that the kingdom of God would come by conquering Rome, Jesus said this in Mark 12. He says, well then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. See, with this statement, Jesus declared that God's kingdom is not an empire of political might that, that just needs to replace our current political system. Kingdom of God is something totally different. In fact, in the fourth century, the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But that didn't save Rome. And in fact, it may have been one of the most corrupting influences on the still fairly young church because the tools and power of empire are completely different than the tools of the kingdom. Kingdom of God is not national or political power, and it can't be found or advanced using those means. And finally, this is a big one. The kingdom of God is not heaven someday. Many Christians believe that if we follow Jesus and if we live correctly, that when we die, someday we will be allowed to enter into the kingdom of heaven, the true kingdom of God. And this idea says that that life on earth is hard, but if we tough it out and if we stay faithful, God will, re will reward us by taking us away from here someday. But that's also not Jesus' perspective. Look what Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6, 9 through 10. He said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught his followers to pray that and ask God that his kingdom would come here and now on earth. Not someday far away, but right here, right now. The kingdom is not something that the faithful will experience someday after we die, but it's something that Jesus expects to see here and now in our lives on earth. So, if the kingdom of God, it isn't religion, if it isn't national power, and it isn't heaven someday... What is it? What did Jesus and the people of his day believe it to be? Well, let's look at a psalm from the Jewish scriptures in Psalm 93, 1 through 2. It says, The Lord is king. He is robed in majesty. Indeed, the Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. Your throne, O Lord, has stood from time immemorial. This is what's called an enthronement psalm. 
because the Jewish people, people believed God was their king. They anticipated his return to be king of Israel again, but their view of kingdom wasn't about a place. In fact, the Hebrew word for kingdom rarely referred to a physical realm that God reigned over. His throne wasn't found in one place. The Hebrew word for kingdom didn't refer to the place where God ruled, but it referred to his authority as king. See, for them, the kingdom of God was not about a physical domain or place. It was about his authority to rule. Because the kingdom of God is anywhere Jesus rules as king. Think about it like this. Every child has a parent or legal guardian, and that parent has authority to make decisions for that child. And that authority isn't restricted by a location. A parent's authority over their kids, it doesn't go away if their child leaves Illinois. Your child could go to any other city, state, or even country, and as their parent, wherever they are, you still have authority over them. It's not restricted by place. And in the same way, God's kingdom is about authority. Now, knowing that, and knowing that Jesus' purpose was to explain and invite people in, into the kingdom, look at Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, we all have measures of authority, every one of us. They're, they're the places where, where we reign and rule. You have authority in your house. You don't have to replace the toilet paper on the roll unless you want to. You may not get to make all the calls at work or at school, but no one else gets to tell you how to live inside your own home. You have authority in your car. You can keep it spotless like it was just detailed, or you could fill it up with McDonald's wrappers. Either way, it's up to you because your car is your kingdom. You have authority over it. And even though your kingdom is limited, you have the right to rule there. But Jesus's kingdom is not limited to a place his authority expands throughout all of creation. It's everywhere, which means anywhere that Jesus is welcomed is a place where the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God may not be religion, but because Jesus has authority, the kingdom can be found in religion because people there embrace him as king. The kingdom may not be national or political power, but it can be found in any nation or government where men and women follow Jesus as king and embrace his reign. The kingdom of God is not religion. It's not national power, and it is not heaven someday. The kingdom is not something that we can force or build or wait for. Instead, it's something we submit to. Jesus has authority over everything. And wherever there are people who submit to the way of Jesus, to his authority, there the kingdom of God is found. So if you want to experience the kingdom that is available to each of us right now, the question you need to ask is this, have I accepted Jesus as the king of my life? Have I accepted his authority to rule and reign in my life? Because Jesus doesn't use the tools of empire. He won't force his kingdom or his reign on anyone. His kingdom is one of invitation and acceptance. And the only way to be part of it is to say yes to Jesus and his way of living. When you look at your life, can you honestly say that you live under the rule of Jesus? Or do you rule over your life in the way that you think is best? 
Your proximity to Jesus and to religion, even the church, is irrelevant. The question is, have you accepted his authority in your life? Because that is the key to the kingdom. Next week, we will begin digging deeper into how the kingdom really works in our lives by looking at the parables and stories of Jesus. But today, may we all say yes to the gentle and loving reign of Jesus in our lives. May we understand and embrace him as king. And may we each experience the true power of being part of his kingdom. I'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.